1: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HouseStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly and I'm Kristen. Kristen, I am guilty sometimes after meals of saying something like, oh, "I could have married that steak." Or I could have married that sandwich. When I have a really good meal, I tend to talk about marriage. You tend to propose to it. I do, even though it's gone, even though it's in my belly, making me happy. I still sometimes say, "Wow, that was." I'd give a ring to that steak. I'd have that steak's babies, and it's just a funny way to express how much—or maybe it's not funny—way to express how much I love a meal. Yeah, and and the thought of a thought of steak babies running around. <laughs> is pretty great. In fact, I, I do it so much that um, one of my friends recently, we were at brunch and I said, oh man, I love these pancakes. And she said, would you marry them? And I was like, eh, they're more of a casual, casual relationship. They're a booty call. Really? Yeah, you booty call pancakes. every now and then I wouldn't marry them, uh-huh. but Just love them and leave them those pancakes. Yeah. So I've got to, I've got to start watching this because apparently it's becoming a pretty bad trait. But even though I jokingly talk about marrying food, um, there are people for whom that attachment to an inanimate object is not that unusual. They would literally like to marry a stake. Or, in the case of some people, the Eiffel Tower, the Berlin Wall, a computer, the Golden Gate Bridge. And these people are termed objectum sexuals, meaning that they have sexual
1: and romantic feelings for an object. Yes, they aren't attracted, sexually attracted to other people, but it's discrete from asexuality in that they have sexual feelings and romantic attachments to, like you said, buildings, uh, sound equipment, um, architecture, all sorts of things. Actually, none of the people in any of our
0: research were in love with food, so I, maybe I shouldn't have used that comparison. But buildings and, and monuments seem to be the most common ones, at least in our research. And this term, objectum sexuality, uh was coined in the nineteen seventies when this woman named Asia Rita Eckloff married the Berlin Wall and she took the last name of Berliner Mauer, which means Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. And um she was sort of the first big uh, topic of conversation around this study. And then in the ensuing decades, we've had uh Erica Eiffel, yes, who married the Eiffel Tower. Uh there was one woman uh, a year ago, I believe, who married an amusement park ride. And she took the last name of the company that manufactures the ride. And there was a movie that came out too a few years ago about this phenomenon. Although people in the objectum sexual community really kind of disavow this movie because they feel that it was sensational, that, you know, they just really want to talk about, you know, how you have sex with the Eiffel Tower. Whereas these people are talking about how these objects bring the same sort of love and satisfaction and support that other people get from a man or a woman.
1: If you were to talk to Erica Eiffel about her relationship with the Eiffel Tower, she uses a lot of the same kind of terminology that you would use to describe a husband or a boyfriend or a significant other of, of any kind. Mm -hmm. They feel, she feels the communication. She feels an actual energy coming from the Eiffel Tower and an energy that she gives back and that radiates from it. And, uh, is faithful in a way to, to the Eiffel tower.
0: Right. I mean, she talks about, you know, she had admired the Eiffel tower in picture. She sort of has, seems to have this thing for all bridges and structural objects, but she talks about going to the Eiffel tower for the first time and just being able to hear it to be, she hears it crying out to her and she deems the Eiffel tower a female. Most objectum sexuals tend to put a pronoun on their object of interest. And some people You know, there was one man who said that every object he was involved with was with another he. So he was a homosexual, object homosexual. Whereas um, Erica Eiffel sees the Eiffel Tower as a female. She sees the Golden Gate Bridge as male. And she talks about how she can have these relationships with these different structural objects and get the kind of, you know, get fulfillment from it so much so that, you know, as
1: we said, she had a commitment ceremony with the Eiffel Tower a few years ago. And Erica Eiffel says that objectum sexuals are animus, who believe that everything in the world has a spirit and a soul. And that's what she is connecting to in these objects. And she first fell in love with a bridge in her hometown. And then she had subsequent relationships with an archery bow and a Japanese fighting sword, among other things.
0: And this idea of things having souls, um, you know, that's how objectum sexuals know, almost know when a relationship is falling apart because breakups do exist. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it's like they stop receiving that energy from an object. One man talks about how, you know, he would sometimes be cheating on his objects because he'd be doing repairs on other objects and he'd start getting the, the vibe from the new object. He'd go back to his original object, let's say it was a computer, and the computer would just be cold and frosty the way a person might be if they suspected you were having an affair.
1: In a lot of the trend stories that you read about objective sexuality, uh, they try to portray who who might have a relationship with an Eiffel Tower or the Golden Gate Bridge or a soundboard mm-hmm. uh because it does seem so foreign to us you know we had the podcast about asexuality and that seemed you know already so um people didn't know don't really know what to do with the idea of um of people not even wanting to love other humans mm-hmm. but then with uh, object and sexuality the idea of feeling some kind of romantic attachment to an object is even more Foreign. And so when they're going through and looking at the community that has that has come out as objective sexual, they find that a lot of them do tend to either have Asperger's or be autistic, which makes sense. Those conditions are marked by an inability to
0: connect with another person. Um, but, you know, not every person who has autism or Asperger's is an objective sexual. Not every objective sexual does have autism or Asperger's. Um, you know, one thing that they always try and look for is an uh, instance of abuse. Was there some traumatic instance in this person's life that leads them to not trust anyone? And they don't find that by and large. They do find a few people who have had abandonment issues. Maybe they were in the foster care system or abused by a, a family member. But, you know, there doesn't seem to be that that trend, which makes uh, these people start to argue that it's just a normal part of human sexuality that should be recognized on the sexuality spectrum, much like that argument we had about asexuality. Is this, should this be a sexual orientation? Mm-hmm. Should this just be recognized as, you know, a choice that people have made? And uh, a researcher named Amy Marsh, who has done probably the biggest uh, study of objectum sexuality, says it is, it is a orientation. It should be considered right up there with heterosexuality, homosexuality.
1: Objectum sexuality. Right. She was saying that if you were to apply the same um, definitions of heterosexuality and homosexuality, um, but simply replace the human aspect of it with an object, it would—you would have the same types of emotional attachments mm-hmm. to things. Um, and Amy Marsh did a survey of, I believe it was 21 uh, objectum sexuals about their relationships with objects, and there was a lot of variation um even within that small community in terms of whether or not they directly communicated with the object, whether or not they masturbated with the object. Um Some of them were, would have monogamous relationships, non-monogamous relationships, much like dating. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, they had varying levels of intimacy. I think that's, you know, probably a question that jumps to a lot of people's minds. Is yeah. If you're sexually attracted to this object, how do you, you know, uh, consummate that? and you know they don't go into detail and you know but humans don't necessarily go into detail either so i don't think that that's out of line with with anything but you know they do find ways to find, to have that satisfaction with their object and you know some people have, have lobbied the accusation that these people are choosing the easy way out because they don't have to deal with the romantic entanglement so another person you don't have to deal with what another person wants or thinks or any of that and that this is somehow easier than a real relationship but As Erica Eiffel points out, you know, you have to deal with the fact that all these tourists are all over the the thing you love. You have to deal with the fact that you can't, you know, go to bed with it at the end of the night. So they're saying it's no easier or more difficult than any other kind of relationship. It's just another equally valid relationship. And I feel like the reason that a lot of them participated in Amy Marsh's study was just to bring awareness to the fact that there are people who can find happiness this way, and if you do find happiness this way, that you're not alone.
1: But since the objectum sexual community is so small, at least the people who are out. Mm-hmm. And because it does seem so taboo to have an emotional attachment to an object, there is a lot of controversy about whether or not this is just some kind of fetish and you're yeah. putting way too much stock into this, um, or whether or not, like you said, it should be considered its own type of sexual orientation.
0: And that's something we can't answer, and I don't think any of these researchers can because it is such a small community right now. I think that... You know, we talked in the asexuality podcast about how uh, the articles kept saying this asexuality revolution was going to happen. And soon everyone was going to identify as asexual. They would all come out of the woodwork. And, um, you know, I have to wonder if in 10 years there'll be more stories about this. um, And if they'll they'll still be the like they are today where it's just sort of like it's always filed under like the weird and wacky news. Mm -hmm. Like woman, woman marries a roller coaster ride. Weird and wacky. Yeah. But, you know. If these people continue to find each other, if awareness continues to be raised, you know, maybe they'll be in the New York Times wedding section one day.
1: (laughs) Perhaps. So I think at this point we should turn it over to our listeners. And uh, because I'm curious to know what what folks think about this. Are these people just wacko? And how on earth could you think that you are dating the Golden Gate Bridge? Or is there something to it? Can you find love in in objects? Can you really fall in love with the Eiffel Tower? Let us know your thoughts. That's mom the question. Stuff, mom stuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Because, Molly, I'm, I'm sure that maybe people can fall in love with podcasts. Of course. That's similar? I would hope so. I hope so. <laughs> so let us hear your thoughts.
0: All right. So let's do some lists for mail. I have a, an email here from Donna who writes, On your monogamy podcast, I was surprised how certain you were that we are not a monogamous species. I don't know that justifying such behavior through examples of the animal kingdom is really such a persuasive argument. Most of what we do as humans is an effort to distance ourselves from the baser characteristics of the animal kingdom. Though it is likely that there was a time when we ran around naked and eating raw meat like animals, we worked to rise above such behavior. As a species, we have put forth significant effort to be more than merely animalistic. I also personally knew some people that tried your proposal of new monogamy. They did set ground rules, and the plan worked for about one year. But after one year, the woman found someone that she wanted more than her husband. I would assume that most people would not be surprised by this outcome and would say, well, what did you expect? Though this method may work for birds, I am not sure that my much more developed and civilized mind can happily move along in a social relationship without the fidelity that my marriage needs. Is it possible that monogamy is part of rising above those baser instincts, allowing us to work for a higher existence?
1: Well, I have an email here from Catherine in response to our episode on eyebrows. And she writes, after listening to your eyebrow podcast, I was reminded of an exchange student from Brazil who lived with us several years ago. She said that where she lives, it was customary to shave off one eyebrow completely upon graduation from college. I don't know if that also applied to high school or postgraduate graduations, but I treasure a picture I have of my beautiful Brazilian exchange daughter missing one eyebrow. Thought you'd get a kick out of this. Very interesting. Very interesting tradition. Yeah. Maybe we should start doing that. For every
0: podcast we can.
1: Yeah. For our next 200th episode, we will shave off our eyebrows. (laughs) All right. Okay. Actually, no, I'm not going to make that deal. You're on your own. We're going to see how far we can take that. <laughs> well, send us emails if you would like to share your thoughts. It's Stuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter and on Facebook. And, of course, you can read our blog. We would love you to. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You, and it's at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, Click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hi, I'm Amy Nelson.
0: And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy? We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other, through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.